Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Seventh of October, Friday. Day off. First, a few jobs around the boat, in the gold of autumn sunshine. The alders are beginning to drop their leaves. I kick them up as I walk through them. Their sound reminds me of when I was young, conker hunting by the A41, in huge drifts of whispering leaves. This is the narrowboat Erica, narrowcasting to you across the dark skies. The hunter's moon, rich and heavy with light, is the consort of Jupiter tonight, hanging low in the south, swimming in Piscean light, painting silver the watery road. The sky belongs to her, and the silent ghost of the owl, and the water rush of the bywash where the pike sleeps with unblinking eye. The boat is warm, the kettle hot, the biscuit barrel is full, and I'm really glad that you could make it. Come inside and welcome aboard. The slow wheel of the seasons has brought some spectacular sunrises with it and even more spectacular sunsets. Skyscapes, carved with geese and crow wings. And a few days ago, from the top of a hill, I watched starlings clustering. Not quite a murmuration, but the makings of one. The distinct, sinuous flow of movement, almost aquatic in form. A little trail shoaling and smoky across the fields, dipping below the tree line and then rising into the air again. I've not noticed murmurations in this area before, but given a bit more time, we may be having some this year. At the moment, we're sitting in the still point between two weather systems coming in from the Atlantic, and the next is about to hit us tomorrow. The temperature has been fairly warm during the day, around the high teens to twenties, as around the sixties Fahrenheit. But the air frequently has a chillier edge to it, especially in the wind, and we've been having a lot of wind lately. There's a stand of alders near us at the moment. In the summer, the wind sang through their leaves with the sounding roar of far-away foaming breakers. And now, their drying leaves rustle in the way that I've always imagined crinolines of old did. In strong breezes, it sounds like waves racing up a shingle bank. And for the first time since late spring, the towpaths have become a little tacky to walk on thanks to some heavy rainy squalls. They're not muddy, just a little claggy underfoot. And the bywash by the lock just down from us is running. 
It's a welcome indication that the canal levels, in this region at least, are back to normal. And the hawthorns particularly are resplendent in their autumn dress. Fiery golds, reds and oranges. And although the alders and the willows are beginning to drop their leaves, the ash and the oaks are holding their summer colours for a little while longer. There appears to have been a slight change with the swans this past couple of weeks. I've noted before how the two juveniles have been becoming more independent from their parents. And recently I've noticed that there's been a distinct distancing even between them. There's been no aggression or signs of being deliberately pushed away, at least that I have seen. From time to time they are all together, or one of the youngsters foraging on the bank or swimming with mum. It's just that they're spending more and more time on their own, particularly one of them. It might be that one is male or female, I don't know enough about them yet, but I've noticed that one seems to prefer to take their rests from feeding alone on their own. There's a little part of me that worries it may be avian flu. Although it's long since dropped out of the news headlines, it is still rife, and on the Swan networks there's regular reports of it. Nonetheless, in every other respect, the signet seems to be fit and well. And as Donna says, it might be that it's just because this is the second year for the parents, and they may be simply exhibiting the more laid-back second-child syndrome. I have to say I've been rather taken aback and, and delighted by the, the number of people who got in contact with me about last week's episode for Rory. Thank you so much for your really kind words and thoughts. And I am so pleased that so many of you enjoyed it. And, okay, I will think about how best to continue the story of Caroline in some way. It was actually something that I started to write years and years ago and added to it from time to time, but I've never really known quite what to do with it. And a couple of you actually have asked or noted whether Harry Potter had anything to do with the, the bus ride. Well, no. Actually, it was written a long time before that. Well, before the film was released anyway, and I've not read the particular book in which the night bus features. If anything, I think perhaps the inspiration for it came partly, and, and I stress partly, from the rather overlooked book by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. And for those of you who know it, it's obviously very different from the bus ride in my story, but there's some really interesting and I find quite compelling images and themes in Lewis's description of that bus ride. The other, I think, more direct inspiration were the bus rides with Mum and Wendy that we used to take on our school holidays into the nearby towns of Watford and Hemel Hempstead, which were always somehow magical and stressful in equal measure. And on the theme of magical and rather wonderful things, Margaret sent me a photograph of a particularly eye-catching and colourful bench that's shaped like an open storybook. 
It's definitely something that would fit really neatly into Caroline's world. So thank you, Margaret, and, and also for your voicemail. And thank you particularly to James and David and Vanessa for your encouragement and your suggestions. And I, I will look into this further. And thank you also over on Facebook to Linda and Rita He. And of course, thank you to MJ, Sherry, and of course, Rory. And I'm so glad you enjoyed the episode and the story. And thank you so much for leaving such a lovely review. I was incredibly touched and moved by it. Thank you. And on some of the social media platforms, I asked what book you would keep on the bookshelf. And some of you contacted me with your choices. And one of them was Captain Ted Dexter. And it was lovely to hear from you again, Ted. And I think you're in Sicily at the moment, aren't you? But Ted voted for The Wind in the Willows, as did MJ. And Lynn Dirk opted for that powerful story, Watership Down. And Rory herself, however, chose The Giving Tree. And it's a book that I've not come across before. And wow, there's a lot going on in there, isn't there? But there's so many layers to it. I, what is the message there? It's one of those books that you could read and get so many different things out of. It's an amazing book, and what a brilliant choice, Rory. And the little stone-winged gargoyle will definitely enjoy guarding that book for you. And one of our other regular listeners, Lee Thomas, got in touch with me. And Lee is back in her cabin in the Colorado mountains after spending 10 days on the Kennet and Avon Canal. And that included the Cane Hill flight, up and down. Lee, I am not surprised you are exhausted. And thank you for your thoughts and your comments on the Church Bells Among Crow Song episode. Hello also to Rob Grant. Thank you for getting in touch with me. Rob, I've got your email. I haven't been able to reply to it yet, but we'll do so as soon as I can. It's always great hearing from you. And finally, I did want to quickly mention about ways to support this podcast. As you will probably know, I want and am determined that these podcasts will remain free and also free from any adverts. And to that end, I've resisted going down the monetization route, which I feel goes completely against the ethos of the podcast. However, I am also aware that some listeners want to feel that they can be a little bit more involved in practical ways and more supportive of it. And I know that's important to feel that you belong and that you are in some ways making a contribution. And in all honesty, I'm not sure how to square this particular circle. And although I've looked at things like buy me a coffee and Patreon, I am not quite sure whether they would either work or are practical in this particular situation. If anyone has any ideas, then I would be really grateful. And you can contact me via the social media, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook page, or through the nosw.pod.com website. 
or through nighttime on stillwaters at gmail.com. I always love hearing from you anyway. Tucked high up under the guttering under the eaves, if modern buildings have eaves, a magpie sits. I don't know whether the bird is a male or a female, so let's call her a her. And neither do I know if she is an adult or a juvenile. There's just something about the roundness of her head, the slightly plumper profile of her body that makes me think she's a juvenile on the edge of adulthood. Whatever the case, there she is. A magpie among the thousand million other magpies. But she doesn't know that. This is her world, and she is the centre of it. And the rain beats down from sky that almost buckles with its heavy leaden clouds. It's a deluge. The world bubbles and seethes under the pluvial onslaught from the sky. Just above her head, the gutters are inundated, overflowing. Water gushes, gurgles, pours in streaming crystal curtains and arcing spouts. It's as if this building block were fitted with spitting gargoyles that spurt water onto the concrete pathways below. And all the while, the magpie perches under the eaves, looking out into the deluge, and lifting her voice in clear laughing rattles. And from time to time, she shifts position slightly, as if to get a better look at this saturated world unfolded below her. She looks from side to side, catching movement below her. Then, lifting her head, the rolling rattle of her song drifts to earth with the falling rain. It's a sight that transfixes me. Even though I've no coat, and the rain soon seeps through my shirt and flows in trickling runnels down my neck, I'm conscious of the wet, and the pavement on which I stand is slick with running water. I need to go on, but somehow I can't. There's something about this scene that holds me. Even though I know that later I will feel the discomforting chill of wet clothes and shoes. This is rain unbounded. And in it, there is a life unbounded. It's not the rain, or a bird sheltering in a rainstorm. It's a magpie in the rain. And not just any magpie, it's this particular one. And I want to join with her in her sharp, discordant song. You do not know that you are so derided, do you? You do not know the distaste and the slanders that you have evoked throughout the centuries. The devil's bird. The pariah bird, the bird of ill omen. 
You do not know how at your sight men have reached for their guns and their stones and all their vicious traps to end your life. Has there ever been a bird more persecuted, more loathed, more reviled? And even many of my birding friends who fiercely protect and advocate for birds draw the line and turn their backs on you. Disease-ridden, egg-stealers, chick-killers, vermin. Did you know that we have a tradition about how you refused entry into the ark on the flood, preferring to perch on its roof and laugh your rattling call in mockery as the world drowned. What calumny is that? But you don't know that, do you? You, lifting your head with such grace, such passion, such beauty, to fill this world with your presence in song. And you do not know that you are a magpie, just that you are alive, and that you are as glorious as an eagle, and your song to you is as sweet and as fluid as a blackbird's. That's why, undaunted, in a drowning world, you sit there and puff out your chest, and sing out the songs of your soul, and who am I to judge or to decry it? Sing your songs, my eagle-hearted friend. Preen your beautiful feathers, make the blues and blacks shine. You have the advantage on us. You do not know your shape or form. We do, and have become obsessed by it and held captive to it. We know that we are not eagles, and our songs are not those of thrush or nightingale. And now we feel we have no place or part in the home which birthed us. Puff out your chest again. And let this rain ring with the song presence of your one wild and precious life. And that line from Mary Oliver circles back to me right now. For I am cast adrift in Rehoboam's land, and my home is no longer mine. For this land, does not make life feel wild or particularly precious. And although the skies above remain as grey as those above that magpie, sitting under the eaves of that building block in Birmingham on a late August day, there is no heart of an eagle in me that would lift my jarring rattle of my voice and sing as if it were a blackbird's trilling song. And the future, well, what future is there when the winds are set to blow so cold and drear? There's a pyracanther at work. It's spiky and uncompromising. 
It makes no apology for its presence. It's just there, even though it's not particularly attractive. A bit rangy, unkempt. Wind-blown litter has a habit of being entrapped in its foliage. A sprawling bush of thorny fire that is not burned, and if the angel of the Lord lives within it, his voice is mute as students blindly pass and police helicopters circle overhead, and there is no Moses to stand barefooted before it. The scarlet fire of berries confetti the ground and then stick to the soles of your shoes, and the next thing you're leaving trails down the corridor and in the office. But for all that, right now, it is this burning bush that I need. It's colourful, brash, and bold. I need that at this time. And because of it, I have learned to treasure its presence for all its untidy, awkward spikiness. I have noticed on Twitter a number of people that I follow have been posting photographs of buds forming on trees and shrubs. The promise, not of the coming winter, but a new spring, a new summer. In these times, it's good to be reminded of the cycles and the dance of time. Next spring's flowers and next summer's fruit are already here, held in the gnarled and bony trust of denuded branch limbs. I like that. It's exactly what I do when my future feels insecure, unsure. And I can remember one year, a number of years back now, going early every morning with Penny to the three horse chestnut trees and the oak that stood at the end of a nearby field. The mornings were invariably cold with a damp chill and wreathed in winter mists. And for me, everything felt so uncertain, and the future was as opaque as the banks of fog that rolled down sun rising. Life had turned to winter, and there seemed to be no end to it. And then, one morning, I noticed the robust, thick buds, their sticky sheaves glowing with mist breath at the end of each branch. Don't worry, they seem to promise. Even though the cold winds may buffet me today, and the cold chill the soil to my roots, there is a part of me that is already living in the spring that is to come. And so every morning Penny and I went up to each tree to remind myself that spring lives even in the depths of winter. I do it almost without thinking now, looking for buds in the dusk of each year. And somehow we'd need this, to find those harbours and coves of comfort when we find that Rehoboam has once more taken his throne and inclined his ear to his young advisers, and we have felt the chill of fear across the land because of it, and we've heard the people cry out in fear. We need the assurance that there are those who stand alongside us, 
hearing not the call of winter darkness, but the songs of summer suns, who flow to a deeper rhythm of their beings and are unconcerned by the knife-blade of our presence. To be reminded that alongside the rapid flip-book pages of our worlds, the dart of the sparrow flying through King Edwin's Mead Hall, there are others who live theirs to a different time, ribboned with rook song and rooted deep in the soil. And these are our companions of consistency, silently partnering us in the unravelling tapestries that we sew. They other dependable friends that seem to lower their branches to us and say, Your hope seems so fragile. Here, share mine. There's an old early English phrase, Thus a freira, this is swame. That passed over, so may this. It's perhaps a precursor to the medieval Sufi phrase, This too shall pass. The Anglo-Saxon Dior voices the pain of its bardic author, unjustly cast out of the court with all its security and luxurious comfort, and exiled to wander in the wild wastelands. There's that theme of exile wandering and homelessness that emerges time and time again in Anglo-Saxon poetry that we explored last year in the episode Winter Wisdom, Wintram Fraud. And in this poem, the poet Dior describes moments of great trauma or anguish from the great stories, the poetic Edda. Some communal, some individual. But after each vignette comes the words, Thus a Freida, this is Swame. That passed over, so may this. One of the verses describes life under the oppressive rule of Ermenrich, a king who ruled the Ostrogoths and died round about 375. We heard Ermanerich's wolfish thought. He ruled widely the people of the kingdom of the Goths. That was a grim king. Many a warrior sat, bound up by cares. Woes in mind wished constantly that the kingdom were overcome. Thus, Ofrieda, this is Swame. There's some comfort in that, to take the long view. Empires and tyrants will always topple and fall, and the trees will always outlive them. And it's good to be reminded of it. Because why are our minds set up in such a way that when good things happen, our minds constantly tell us, this can't last, something horrible is going to happen. And yet, when we experience difficult and fearful times, those same minds tell us that this is the natural state of things, nothing will ever change. 
Perhaps not everyone thinks like that, but I can't be the only one. It's good to be reminded, that's a Frida, this is Swami, that passed over, this may too. However, even so, there's a part of my mind that also rebels. Yes, almost for certain this too will sometime pass. Rehoboam's reign did come to its inglorious end, but what then? What if I am at the stage in my life that I am aware the end of the road is coming? What then? What then if the damage done like those of the Rehoboam's rule is too great to heal? Where is the constellation then of this Siswami? This is a harder question, and to be honest, one for which I have no answer. And I am uncomfortable in stock phrases or distraction techniques to turn my gaze to more pleasanter things. Thus, Afrida, this Siswami, does give me comfort. And I warm to its more ambiguous, this may too, as opposed to the more emphatic, this too shall pass. It hints at that realism creeping in to temper the optimism so characteristic of the darker worldview of the early English writers informed by their Norse cousins. But no, the long view does help, but not entirely. A reminder and an awareness of change helps but it's the sense of permanence, or at least the constant, that gives me comfort and strength. The lives lived parallel to mine, to older rhythms and more well-proven logic. The catkins and cones already showing on the waterside alders, even as their leaves drop. All the magpies who lift their cracked and jarring voices and proudly sing as if they were nightingales with the hearts of eagles. It's only then that my life begins to feel, if not totally, at least moving towards something wild and something precious. And because it does, I know that this is the key. The signal of transcendence, the spark that makes the pyracantha blaze, my guide. So I'll not leave you with the words of Deor on our lips, as helpful as they may be. I'll give the final words to Mary Oliver. Welks here are the perfect fans of the scallops, quahogs and weedy mussels, still holding their orange fruit. And here are the whelks, whirlwinds, each the size of a fist, but always cracked and broken. Clearly they have been travelling under the sky-blue waves for a long time. All my life, I've been restless. I have felt there is something more wonderful than gloss, than wholeness, than staying at home. 
I've not been sure what it is. But every morning on the wide shore I pass what is perfect and shining to look for the whelks whose edges have rubbed so long against the world they have snapped and crumbled. They have almost vanished with the last relinquishing of their unrepeatable energy back into everything else. When I find one, I hold it in my hand. I look out for that shaking fire. I shut my eyes. Not often, but now and again, there is a moment when the heart cries aloud, Yes! I am willing to be that wild darkness, that long blue body of light. And in the darkening skies there are geese flying west to the setting sun. And I think perhaps, after all things, they might be leading us back home. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night and wishing you a very peaceful, restful night. Good night. Sleep well. Temperature outside. 5.6 degrees. Inside. 26 degrees. Humidity. 72%. Dew point. 4 degrees. Wind direction. Southwest. Wind strength. 4 miles per hour. Barometric pressure. 1023.4 rising. Cloud cover. 31%. Cloud ceiling. None. Precipitation, nil. Moon phase, 98.9%. Waxing gibbous. Day length, 11 hours, 8 minutes. Sunset, 1828. Skycasting, 722.